I'm tempted to have the rest of you get up and do some jumping jacks. My goodness. Just feels this sort of lethargy this morning going on. Uh, is it the beginning of school? Is that what's doing it? Or um, not sure. Which kind of troubles me because this morning, as we look into a particular topic, it's not one of those thrilling, exciting um, topics that we need to address and that are found in Scripture. It's sort of more of a meat and potatoes kind of topic. We're dealing with constitutional changes as a church, and I wanted to take just a couple of weeks to talk about the foundation for leadership within the church, to talk a little bit about some of the changes that we're making, what is the rationale behind some of it, but to do it in a way that really focuses upon Scripture. One of the things that I was reading this week was a little bit of American history. We kind of get the dates mixed up, and sometimes we think that 1776, which was the year of the Declaration of Independence, somehow the Constitution is stuck in there, and the Constitution came about around the same time or whatever. And if you know your, if you know your American history, you know that's not quite true. You know that in 1776 there was the Declaration of Independence, and as the colonies came together, the first means by which they governed the central government governed was the Articles of Confederation. They were articles that were signed by the colonies in order to be united as a nation, but they didn't work very well. There was no real central government. There was no real central authority. And the states had so much individual authority that the nation began to divide and break apart. There were problems with commerce. For example, Rhode Island decided, you know what? We don't like this whole thing about debt. And so every 13 years, they were going to cancel debt. And so every 13 years, no matter how much you owed, all of a sudden that debt would be canceled. You're not going to like that one. There were other states that were saying, you know, we want to do this with commerce and we want to do that. And they began to pull apart. And so beginning in about 1878, I'm sorry, 1786, and going through actually to 1789, there was the beginning of the Constitution. There was a constitutional convention where delegates from the states gathered together and in secret, nobody knew the conversations that were going on. Later, the Federalist Papers would be published that described the process. But there was the process of coming up with a better means of governing these colonies as a nation. There was the Virginia Plan. There was the New Jersey plan, and there was a lot of discussion about the power of the central government. Finally, it was what's called often the Connecticut Compromise that brought about a resolution and an ability to stand together. 
And what we have as the foundation of our system of government in the United States was that compromise where we have an executive branch, we have a judicial branch, we have a uh, legislative branch. Within the legislative branch, there are two houses. There is a Congress made up of the Senate and the House, and all of that took place, and there was much discussion about how they would be represented and whether it would be by state, that's what the Senate is, or whether it be proportioned by the number of people, that's what the House is. But something was very interesting that took place at that time. And those that gathered together to write that Constitution and the scholars that involved understood something. They understood that no matter how good the system is, if the people involved in that system are not good people, it will simply collapse. You read it all the way through. You can read it as John Hancock said this, sensible of the importance of Christian piety and virtue to the order and happiness of a state. The system is good. But unless you have, he uses the word Christian piety and virtue, unless you have good people, moral people, I cannot, honest, I cannot but earnestly commend to your every measure of their support and encouragement. We need good people to have a good system. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Constitution, said this, the only means of establishing and perpetuating our republican form of government is the universal education of our youth in the principles of Christianity by means of the Bible. In other words, if you do not have a good citizenship, if you do not have moral leaders, the system will fall apart. Thomas Jefferson said this, The practice of morality being necessary for the well-being of society. Not the Constitution. The character of the people involved. Because of that, he, God, has taken care to impress its precepts so indelibly on our hearts that they shall not be effaced by the subtleties of our brain. We all agree in the obligation of the moral principles of Jesus, and nowhere will they be found delivered in greater purity than in his discourse. The importance of a moral leadership and a moral people, whatever the structure is. Noah Webster said this, probably the strongest statement of all. The Christian religion is the basis or rather the source of all genuine freedom in government. I am persuaded that no civil government of a republican form can exist and be durable in which the principles of Christianity have not a controlling influence. Now, I'm not here to talk about, are we a Christian nation? I'm not here to discuss, you know, it it depends how you use that term, and I don't believe the way we normally use that term. I would agree with that statement. But what those statements do say is this. No matter what the structure, if those involved in the structure are not moral people, good people, the system will collapse. As the Constitutional Committee was involved in talking about the changes that need to be made, 
And we talked about the idea of do we want to have a lot of detail in there or more of a general broad outline. One of the things we said often in our interactions, in our discussions, is this. There is no way to make a constitution that will cover every situation. If there are people that want to abuse whatever we write, they will be able to abuse it. And therefore, the system would collapse. We're going to propose to you, we're in the process of proposing, changes and a system. But in the midst of it, one of the things that we have to understand is that quality church leadership and organizations depends upon the character of the people involved. Do you remember when they used to say it's, it, it's the economy stupid? Remember that back, those of you who have been around? I don't like that term, but... Well, when it comes to leadership within the church, as it comes to us as a church being an organization that functions effectively, it's the character. The character of the people, both leading and involved. Now, when you begin to study scripture very quickly, you'll see, can we turn the clock on in the back? Uh, you'll see that God's word provides an organizational framework for the local church. There is a way that the church is to function. There are passages in scripture that give us a general broad outline of the way that a church, a local church, a gathering of the universal church in a specific area, when they gather together, there are some principles found in scripture that can help us to understand what our structure ought to look like. There's not a whole lot of passages. I mean, you can run through them. You know, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 15, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 21, Romans chapter 16, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Titus, I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 5, Philippians chapter 1. I mean, you can go through 1 Peter chapter 5. There are a few passages in Scripture that lay out a basic foundation of how how we ought to function in terms of our leadership, in terms of our structure. Any organization needs structure. I've been a part of sports clubs, soccer clubs, and, and they had a structure. Um, I'm a part of a fishing club, and they have their bylaws and their constitution. And, you know, all organizations need that, and that's true of the local church, too. And so as you read through those passages, you come to understand this, that once established, once a local church was established in the New Testament, local churches were organized with structure and leadership. In fact, as you read through in the book of Acts, you read at the end of the very first missionary journey, as Paul is coming to the end and he's making his way back to report on what's been going on in this missionary journey, it says in Acts chapter 14, then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraged them to remain true to the faith. Paul said to them, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Paul and Barnabas, now listen, appointed for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the the Lord in whom they had put their faith. 
They appointed elders for them in each of these churches. They established a process of leadership. You read that throughout the New Testament. In Titus chapter 1, as Paul is writing to his his fellow servant, Titus, as Titus is going back and he's dealing with the church in Crete, it's a brand new church, it's a mission church. And he says, for this reason I left you in Crete. It was what? That you might straighten out what was left unfinished. Bring organization and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Why do we have organizations so we can function well? And so we need some kind of structure. When you read through scrub, yep, try it again. My, I covered my eye teeth and couldn't see what I was saying. Um, but the, the leadership of the local church always involved a plurality of people. There was always more than one. You will never, ever, In the scripture, find the term when speaking about the position of elder or overseer leading a church in the singular. It is always, always in the plural. It's elders in each of the churches. It's overseers in each of the churches. It's deacons in each of the churches. It's always plural. Why? Well, if you've lived long enough, you know that if you give too much authority to one person, eventually someone will come along to misuse that authority. And so the authority in the local church is always shared. Another phrase you will not find in Scripture in the New Testament anywhere is something written to the pastor, singular, of this church. Or that church. There was always a plurality of elders. There was always a team leading. There was always a sense of accountability. One of the things that I love about grace, that I love about the elders, is that they are accountable to me as I am an elder, and I am accountable to them as they are elders. They can ask me anything about my relationship, about my marriage to Cindy, about how I use my computer, how I use my time. We are accountable to one another. And that structure is found all the way through the New Testament. You will not find it in the singular. In fact, the phrase pastor is never used of a church office. It only is talking about shepherd well. Deal with well, take care well of the flock that God has given. The leadership of the local church is made up in the New Testament of two primary positions. The two positions are this, elder overseer and deacon. Now, when you come to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 5, There may also be what's called the widow. 
who is registered, who had to show certain characteristics. The church there was a huge church. And so the church at Ephesus might have had those that are are widowed women who no longer have families that had a unique ministry of service to the church. That's a possibility. The primary place you will find leadership in the New Testament is found in these terms. Elder overseer, or deacon. And as you work your way through, a couple of things you find. Three titles are used to designate the leadership. They're elder, overseer, and deacon. But two of them are very similar. Elder and overseer are cultural terms used interchangeably. Usually, in something that elder talks about the position and overseer talks about kind of the task. I think it's better to understand it this way. Elder was a Jewish term. Overseer was a Greek term. And so when you see the leadership described, and it's in a Gentile context, Paul often uses the term overseer. When it's in a Jewish context, you'll see the term elder. But they're definitely interchangeable. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and then later in verse 7. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Then you jump down and you read through a couple verses, and it says, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. The words are used interchangeably. They're used interchangeably in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as what? Overseers. The words are used interchangeably. Acts chapter 20, I didn't put it up, is another passage where Paul gathers together the elders from the churches around that area as he's making his way to Jerusalem on his last part of his missionary journey, and he's not sure he's going to live through that. And so as he's doing that, he calls the elders together and then will address them that as overseers. Words are interchangeable. All churches, all churches, can I say it again? All churches had leaders that were called elders and overseers. You will not find a local church in the New Testament that does not have elders slash overseers. But only larger, more established churches added deacons to assist in the administration of the church under the authority of the elders slashed overseers. Again, just some quick verses. Titus chapter 1. Titus is dealing with Crete. It's a very brand new church. It's just getting started. It probably was just a few families that were gathered together. And so as Paul is writing to Titus, he says that he should appoint elders. But there's no mention of other levels of leadership. Why? Because the congregation was small enough that all you needed was a few men to lead it, and that would be enough. They didn't need more structure. 
But later on, when Paul is writing to Timothy, probably writing about the same time, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder, he desires an honorable position. So an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. But then to this large church at Ephesus, this well-established church, this church that has been going on at this time for decades, they probably were one church gathered together in that city with multiple locations throughout the city. Paul says they become so big that thou they deem deacons, those to assist. You see the same pattern in Acts chapter 6. There it's the apostles. They don't have elders yet. Why? Because they're all gathered together. It won't be until Acts chapter 8 when the, when the apostles are finally and the people are scattered and the apostles stay in Jerusalem, but the churches scatter throughout. You suddenly begin to see elders appearing, our overseers. But there were apostles that were doing the work of leading the church and it was becoming so much of a problem because of the feeding of the widows that they appointed deacons to assist them. Now, the terminology is not important. How do I know that? Sometimes they're called elders. Sometimes they're called, you know, they're called overseers. Sometimes they're... The the terminology is not important. But the idea of a structure where there are leaders that take the responsibility of leading the church and others to assist them in that leadership is the structure of the New Testament church. Now, one of the things that we've said, and is so important, is even the best organization and leadership structure can be misused and destructive when led by insecure, self-seeking people. I think our form of government in this country is the most phenomenal form of government possible. You know, you've heard it, you know, uh, uh, a representative democracy is messy and it's difficult and it's hard. But it's better than anything else out there. I think that's true. I think the idea of checks and balances, I think the idea of branches of government, I think the idea of ways that the House should be structured, Congress should be structured. But we all know, if you have somebody leading in any of the positions of authority, who chooses to be self-centered or insecure and to use that position of authority for their own self-seeking purposes, I don't care what system you have, it will become abusive. One of the things I I will read every so often, many of you here are in homeowners associations. And they will often talk about the, you know, the homeowner association that has somebody in leadership that is more concerned about their authority than the welfare of the people in the homeowners association. And you read all kinds of ways in which the bureaucracy and the, and the, 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 the structure becomes more important than the individuals. That's true of every structure. And as we look at our Constitution, beloved, please be aware I don't care how good that constitution is. And Jeff and the team did an amazing job 
If we don't have quality leaders and we are not quality people, it will be abused and misused. And that's why when you come to Scripture, the Bible's focus is on the character and quality of the leadership, not the structure. There are all kinds of structures that exist out there. I think the idea of a, a, a plurality of elders with deacon and deaconesses, we're using just the term deacon now for both men and women. I think that is the structure you find. I think that's the best way to describe it. I think that's the best way to do it. But there are many different structures that exist. There are denominational structures. There are strong pastoral structures. There are congregational structures. You know, where it's, should we paint the you know, church yellow or should we paint it bright green? I vote yellow, I vote bright green. 51% one yellow, we're yellow. But no matter what the structure, if there's not a quality of leadership, that structure will be destructive. As I was thinking through the application of this message beyond the structure of the church, this is where it's found. If ever you were involved in a situation where there are those Christian leaders who are overbearing and domineering and, and, and unflexible and, and condemning and abusive, can I give you a word of advice? Leave. The leadership here at Grace, the men and women who lead this church, are wonderful people. But if ever, for whatever reason, the leadership becomes domineering and abusive and constantly condemning, I mean, not that there isn't times you say, this is right, this is wrong. My advice, leave if it cannot be changed. Because quality in leadership is essential. And as you begin to look at those qualities, you begin to see how Scripture defines what it means to be a mature believer. There's a wonderful book by a man by the name of Gene Getz called The Measure of a Man. I think the title is sexist. I think it ought to be The Measure of a Person. And in it, he uses the qualifications just for men that is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. But he says there, if you want to know what it means to walk as a mature believer, take a look at those characteristics and make them the aim of your life. Beloved, if you want to know what it means to be a mature believer, if you want to know what it means to look for good quality, maturity in people, people that you're following, whether it's as a mentor, whether it's somebody that's discipling you, whether it's in the leading of a Christian organization, you look for those characteristics and you find people that show maturity. The Bible emphasizes the personal character and leadership strengths of those in leadership. They are to be above reproach. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to his 
his worker, Timothy, and telling him, I want you to help establish this established church to, to get them in line, to, to bring them along so that they'll have good leadership. And in First Timothy chapter 3, as he's describing what that leadership is like, he talks about the fact that it's a trustworthy statement. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. And then he goes on to say, this is what they ought to be like. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, means he has a good reputation. The husband of one wife, literally it's a one-man woman, means he treats women with respect and dignity. He treats the, the opposite sex. She treats the opposite sex later when you're dealing with deacon and deaconesses with respect and dignity. He must be temperate and self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of many. If he manages his own family well and sees that his children obey with proper respect. In other words, there's a quality about these people. Those are the people we are to be led by. Titus will say the same thing. But secondly, the Bible emphasizes the quality of the leadership style of the person. It is to be strong, caring, and servant-oriented in our leadership. When I was in seminary working on my doctoral program, I had the privilege of one of my professors was a man by the name of Andy Seidel. Andy was a West Point graduate. He had served in Vietnam. He was in the Air Cavalry. And the clip I'm about to show is about the Air Cavalry. He spent several tours in Vietnam and was in combat often. And he taught a course on leadership. And what he learned in that situation, what he learned even in the, also in the military academy, on what it meant to be a leadership, leader was incredible. And I often think about Andy Seidel, and I often think about his leadership style. When I see this clip, one of my favorite movies dealing with leadership, it's from the movie We Were Soldiers Once. And watch what happens. I will take your boots off. Go on. Everybody, take your boots off. Everybody. Socks, too. I want you to draw fresh socks from supply. Keep your feet dusted with powder. Everybody check each other's feet like God bolted me. Now that young man's a leader. Yes, sir. That other feller. That big strong one there. He wants to win medals. If you know the movie, the first one, the first lieutenant, 
would lead his men into battle. And he would sacrifice his life in the process of saving his men. The second man, the second lieutenant, out of a pursuit of glory and medals, would lead his army, he lead his squad into an ambush, and all but three would be killed. Did you get the imagery there? The imagery was foot washing. The imagery used in that movie was right out of the New Testament. Where the leader says, Jesus, when he takes and puts around himself the towel and gets down on his knees and washes the feet, there is that idea, was Jesus a strong leader? Yes. Would he confront what needed to be confronted? Yes. But he was also a caring and servant leader who saw the needs of those he was leading and sought to do what was necessary to meet those needs. And so you see in a movie based on a West Point leadership style, even there the phrase, now that's a leader. That's what you see all the way through Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. This is how we ought to be as leaders. I don't care where you are a leader, whether it's at work, whether it's in the office, whether it's your, at your home as a parent, whether it's here as a church, as a, a deacon or a deaconess or an elder. I don't care where you lead. This is how we ought to lead. This is what we ought to represent. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, not out of force, not out of a demand, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Thibault, take your shoes off. Each of you, check each other's feet. An example of being a strong, caring, serving leader. Another wonderful passage is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. I want you to see the images that Paul uses to describe his leadership style. As apostles of Christ, we have, been a bur- we have not been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a, and literally you could translate it, nursing mother caring for her little children. How often do you hear that image as an image of leadership? But it's talking about the concern we have for those that we lead, whether it's our children, whether it's our fellow workers, whether it's our fellow congregants. It is to care about the needs that exist in that other person. We love you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. The words toil and hardship speak about a servant, a slave. 
who's committed to do what is necessary for those that they lead. And then finally, Paul says this, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as fathers, dealing with his own child. And the sense there's of setting direction and setting guidance and, and leading and and, and putting forth a, a, a means in which we move, a way in which we move, encouraging and comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. As you look at our Constitution, as you look at the changes, know that no matter what that system is, no matter what that, that, that structure is, unless we as a church and we as leaders of this church are committed to being people who love God's people and serve them as loving mothers, as loving fathers, as, as servants, the structure will be worthless and misused. Parents, how do you lead your children? Do you lord it over them? That is a model for parenting. But it just leads to exasperation, as Ephesians 6 says. You know what is so interesting? In my doctoral work, I had to do a lot of reading on leadership. If you read Josie Bass, if you read what's being published out of Harvard, and you read what's being published out of the the leadership groups that are writing about leadership, they will say the kind of leadership we need to have is a servant, loving, strong, yes, leadership. Even the world is getting it. Even Colonel Moore, a West Point graduate, in his book, not just in the movie, gets it. And then finally, the Bible emphasizes the accountability of local church leaders. We don't have time, so let me run through very, really quickly. Those who lead a local church are accountable on three levels. One, they are accountable to Christ as the chief shepherd. And those who choose to be leaders in the church, but also as parents in other areas that involve God's kingdom. God says you'll give an account to the one who is the chief chief shepherd. Two, they're accountable to one another. Paul in Acts chapter 20 warns of the wolves that will come up from within their midst. And he tells them to watch one another. There's accountability among ourselves. And finally, there's accountability to those they lead. In Acts chapter 6, as they are choosing leadership, it says, and it found favor with the entire congregation. In Acts chapter 15, as they're sending out representatives concerning the theological discussions that have just taken place, as they're choosing that leadership, it says, 
and have found favor with the entire congregation. We're in the process of going through our constitution. I'll talk about it in two weeks and then again in three weeks. And then we start a whole other series. But the thing we need to understand, the structures are not the focus of scripture, but quality of leadership. A leadership that demonstrates Christ in the way they lead and in the life that is represented. That they can be examples before us to show us what it means to live as followers of Christ. As we look at these changes, yes, look at the structure, but also look at the ways that we call forth quality leadership in the men and women that are involved in leadership positions within our church. Father, let's pray. Father, thank you for the structure, the instructions that your word gives to us. Father, not an overwhelmingly exciting topic, but one that is important as we as a church seek to be your representative in this community. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom as as a congregation as we interact over the questions we might have. May we do so in a way that demonstrates you, but also may we do so in a way that seeks to bring about what you would lead us to be in our leadership, in our structure, what we are as a church. Father, we take time each Sunday morning, even in a topic like this, to understand that to be a part of a local church is to be a part of the body of Christ. That begins with our relationship with you through your son. And Father, we put an invitation, we ask those that may not be certain of that relationship each Sunday morning to come and speak to somebody here about how they can be certain that they are a part of what you are doing, that they have a relationship with you. Thank you that we have a local church to be a part of, to minister in and through. And we praise you for that opportunity in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.